When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Dive in on Gotta Watch the Tape from Cleveland.com. It is your film and numbers breakdown about the Cleveland Browns who are off this week at 5-3. and three. Doug Maurice, Scott Patsko, and Ellis Williams. Second half, Ellis Williams will break down where we stand with Baker Mayfield. Eight games in, what he's done well, some important stats, what it means. But we're going to start with Scott Pasco and how the Browns couldn't stop the Raiders on the ground when it mattered on Sunday and what that means going forward and how their future opponents are maybe going to run the ball against these Browns. So Scott Pasco, dive in on Gotta Watch the Tape. All right. So if you saw the game on Sunday, you know that the Raiders ran all over the Browns. They gained 208 yards. It was by far the most the Browns have given up this season. And Kevin Stefanski, after the game, didn't have a lot of answers for that. He he mentioned that the Browns kept getting pushed back on defense, which is true. After watching the tape and talking to the media on Monday, Stefanski mentioned things like technique and, you know, 11 players needing to work together and all that's true. But there were a few things after going back and looking at the tape that that really stood out to me. And I wanted to go over the, I guess there's really three of them here that I want to mention. The first one is Larry Ogunjobi, who had perhaps his worst game as a pro on Sunday. Uh, against the run, PFF graded him at 29.9, which is really not good. <laughs> uh, it's by far the worst grade on the team. <clears throat> he basically got pushed around by the interior of the Raiders line all game. Sheldon Richardson didn't play great either. Really, none of the Browns' interior linemen had a good game on Sunday, but Ogan is the one who really stood out. Earlier in the season, like you remember reading those stories about how Joby had started off the season really well in his contract year, and he was kind of making a statement early on and that was happening in weeks one and weeks two. He looked great against the Ravens and the Bengals. Uh, but then he had the abdomen injury, which kind of lingered for a while. It caused him to miss the Colts game. And last week he was limited all week in practice with a hamstring injury. And I think those two things, I, who knows if the abdomen thing is still lingering, but it's clear that Ogunjobi is not the same player that we saw earlier in the season. Any NFL player would tell you that by week eight, they're not the same as they are. Earlier in the season, but again, Ogunjobi's really been a, a before and after. Look at that. He's basically graded at replacement level the last five games against the run. Go back and look at the Bengals tape, and you see him like exploding off the line, getting into the backfield. And even if he doesn't get Joe Mixon, he's causing Mixon to change his direction. And uh, the Bengals really do not have a good game running the ball. On Sunday, it was the other way around. It was Ogunjobi getting pushed left and right, getting pushed straight back, and just kind of out of the play multiple times. And that really hurt the Browns. The second thing uh, that really worked in, in the Raiders' favor, which is, was really a surprise, is that Denzel Good, the left guard, kind of caught Wyatt Teller disease on Sunday. He's a former seventh-round pick of the Colts who had graded above 60 as a run blocker just once this season. This week, he was the third-best guard in run blocking in the NFL. He graded at 90.8. Um, he was the fourth-best offensive lineman overall blocking the run. Ogunjobi obviously helped that. But he had success in all his matchups, whether he was polling, whether he was filling his gap, whether he was going to the second level and taking out linebackers. Like Denzel Good was 
was just a totally different player from what the Raiders had gotten from previously. The week before against the Buccaneers, who have a really good run defense, they ran behind good one time and gained one yard. Against the Browns, they ran behind him eight times and averaged five yards a carry. Rodney Hudson, the center, also uh, had a big impact. Uh, they kind of combined a lot of times to just push back the center of the Browns' defensive line. Uh, but Good just had the game of his life, and, and, and it was a huge reason why the Raiders were able to keep running. The third thing is, and if you've listened to this podcast before, you know that we've talked about how bad the Browns' linebackers are, and, and it, it kind of showed through uh, against the Raiders. But they should tackle. I thought they were supposed to be able to tackle B.J. Goodson. Well, here's the problem. The Browns used eight men in the box a lot and multiple times they actually brought in a fifth lineman. They would bring in Jordan Elliott along with the starter. Sometimes it was Vincent Taylor, but they always, uh, they almost always had eight people in the box. And what kept happening is those linebackers were just getting caught up in traffic. The Browns defensive line was getting pushed back and these linebackers are not quick enough to avoid all that traffic. Even when there wasn't traffic, they had issues avoiding blockers where it was good coming around and, and smashing Mac Wilson on a pole or whether it was a fullback uh, taking out two linebackers, which happened to Goodson and Taki Taki on a, a key short run by the Raiders. Probably the best example of, of the linebackers not avoiding blocks actually came on a, a pass play. It was that screen on third and 18 that yeah. they, uh, they gave 17 yards on. It was Devontae Booker got it. And the left tackle Colton Miller starts lumbering ahead. There's no one for him to block except for Mac Wilson, who's a good six, six and a half yards away. And Mac Wilson could not avoid him. This should be an easy thing for someone who has the athleticism that Mac Wilson has. But Colton Miller got to him, basically pushed him out of the play. And, Col- and Devontae Booker had a free, free line, 17 yards, and they convert fourth and one, keep the drive going. And they end up getting a, a field goal on that play or on that drive. So you saw that over and over. The big thing, though, was traffic. There was one time Mac Wilson, short play, he avoided, he avoided his lineman, got around him, but he was too slow to actually take down Jacob, uh, Josh Jacobs and ended up trailing to play. Jacobs picks up the first down. So it was just a whole lot of trouble for the linebackers who either couldn't avoid their blocks or were too slow to get around them and make a play. You can mention other things here like Sione Takitaki, who's been the best Browns run defender, only at 21 snaps. But Ogunjobi, Denzel Good, and the Browns linebackers overall are what really stood out in this game. All right, so here's the deal on this. To, have, to hear this podcast talk about problems with the Browns linebackers, it's practically in the theme song. It's like, do, 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 the Browns linebackers suck. Do, 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 do. So listen, that is not new. I'm here for that. That's important. Some of this other stuff, Terry Pluto had a column that was like on the top of the Cleveland.com homepage all day on Monday. And the headline, I think, was something like, abandon all ye hope, this season is on fire. Because the defense like gave up and I, you know, Terry is tremendous, but is there any room here for like the Browns had a bad game? The Raiders had a good game. And by the way, they only gave up 16 points. I know the weather was bad, but people are acting like the Browns defense is going to make them go. Oh, and eight in the second half, the Raiders had like 25 more plays than the Browns did. They, they had the same number of yards per play in the game. I get that's part of it. You got to hold on to the ball and make conversions. Some of this defensive line stuff that you outlined, Scott, it's like, all right, Ogunjobi was good. Sounds like maybe he's hurt. He had a terrible game. He'll recuperate in the bye. Guess what? 
Miles Garrett wasn't himself, didn't play a lot, was hurt when he did play. Sheldon Richardson's been pretty good much of the year. I think he'll be better again. And Olivier Vernon was getting to the quarterback more on Sunday than he did at any other point during the year. So I think we are like somehow in the aftermath of this, we have smushed together the known issues with the back seven with some new issues that showed up with the front four that really weren't there. And the takeaway from that is everybody stinks on the defense. Now it's over. And I think it is a drastic overreaction and I'm not saying they're good. I'm saying they're as bad as we thought they were and they were winning with them being bad before. So chill out people. Ellis, what do you think? Ellis hear, disagrees. Ellis disagrees with me. Welcome. I, I, hear, I hear where you're coming from, Doug. But if if you had to put a panic meter on a scale of one to ten, I'm gonna sit at a six. And for this reason, we teased it on last week's Friday's Gotta Watch the Tape. Uh, on our final segment, I said, watch out for this Browns run defense. I'm a little worried that they're not what we think they are. And that was only because the Bengals abandoned the run game in Cincinnati. They let Burrow throw it a hundred times and didn't have Joe Mixon and have a bad offensive line anyway. But I thought the the truth was in the Steelers game, the way that as soon as Pittsburgh was up 7-0, that became James Conner's game. And they just pushed forward 20 carries, hundred yards. And it wasn't that Conner was popping big runs or that you thought it was this dominant effort but it's a body of work over time. It's the offense imposing the will on the defensive line. And from the second quarter to halfway through the fourth quarter, if you do that consistently by the time the game's over, and I guess in Pittsburgh, that game was over starting the fourth quarter. But my point being, you do that over a, a, a three quarter stretch, you're toast for the, the home stretch. You're done. You're, you're mentally, you're out of it. You're frustrated. You can't get a stop and you can't get off the field. There's nothing more frustrating than facing third and four and then a fourth and one. And then the offense gets another fresh set of downs and you keep milking that same process. It's what the Steelers did and it's exactly what the Raiders did. So to me, two is a trend, even though they didn't happen in consecutive games, it's two of the past three weeks. And Scott makes a lot of good points about both these players being injured and just the state of the run defense right now. This is becoming a trend, and I'm starting to wonder if injuries are playing into this more than we're giving them credit for, and if one week off, one bye week, is enough to get back to even 90 95%. Because these guys, and I'm, I'm, I perhaps Scott gets into this, but these guys, Sheldon Richardson, Larry Ogunjobi, are playing a lot of snaps, and I don't see that changing in the second half of the season. So the, the Raiders, again, ran 71 plays in that game. The Browns ran 47. I think the Browns' best defense is their offense, is staying on the field themselves, is outscoring the teams that score a lot on their defenses. We know their offense was a mess because of injuries, because of the wind, because of five drops, because they don't have Nick Chubb. A lot of that is going to change. 71 plays versus 47. Part of the reason of that is because the Browns didn't make any conversions themselves because Jarvis Landry and David and Joku and other people were dropping balls. So it's all this complimentary football thing. I think the offense let the defense down as much as the defense obviously let the offense down. I think it also worked the other way. And so again, part of it as, as you're looking for the future, is this going to happen again? Is this going to happen again? I think there are a lot of things, which is why I just, the minute that game ended, I, I was done with it. I just don't think it's representative because the other thing, we know it, we know, okay, we get it. The defense is not great. We get it, but that it, that it is 
like disastrously, horribly sound. I just think they have ways to make up for it. So, Scott, what, what, why were you, what was surprising about that? Right. Cause some of, we know the deal on some of this, but yet there were some things that, that happened with that defense that hadn't really shown up before. Right. Yeah. And, and first though, real quick, I, you guys make good points about, and we've talked about this too. Like is the Browns run defense good or is the pass defense just so bad that this circumstance led to the Browns ranking as well as they had, you know, they had double digit leads in, those, in that four game win streak uh, teams had to pass and what would happen when a team had to run on the Browns and, that's what we saw on, on Sunday. But through seven weeks, the trends did not suggest that we were going to see what we saw on Sunday. The Raiders were 17th in rushing yards per game, 113 and a half. And uh, during the broadcast on Sunday, they put up a graphic. I think it was sometime in the third quarter that they had blown past that already. When Josh Jacobs had not had a 100-yard rushing game all season. The Raiders were 27th in rushing DVOA, which, again, is kind of ranks you against the average in the league. So even though they were 17th in rushing yards, um, the actual efficiency of that running game was not great. Uh, Jacobs averaged more than four yards per carry in a game just once this season before Sunday. And here's the thing that, that really stood out to me. The, the Raiders do not have any good run blockers, <laughs> at least to, to, to the, up to Sunday. They, Sam Young, their right tackle, had been their best run blocker. He only played 23 snaps. He left with an injury. Richie Incognito uh, is, was second. He's only played in two games this year. Didn't play Sunday. Trent Brown. Same thing. He was third on the list in run blocking and he's only played in two games due to injury. So the Browns were up against backups and they were up against a team that just did not run block very well. That was despite them just giving up 92 yards per game on the ground, which was fifth best in the league before Sunday. Uh, They were 19th in DVOA. So maybe that was a little misleading as far as the overall average, which kind of goes back to were the Browns really good at defending the run or was it just teams did not focus on that before Sunday. The real problem that really kind of came to the forefront uh, is the Browns in short yardage situations. We've mentioned uh, football outsider stats like power success and stuffed rank, which basically tracks how well defensive lines play in short yardage situations and how often they uh, stop running backs for no gain or a loss. They were ranked 23rd in both of those this season. And what we saw on Sunday with the Raiders is them repeatedly running and converting on second and short, third and short. Uh, They converted twice on fourth and one. So even though the Browns have been ranked pretty well against the run, that is something that they really struggled at. But all that other stuff just really didn't track with what these both these teams had done prior to Sunday. I want to make another point that is on my topic, which is making excuses for the Browns. <laughs> so the, Ra- the Raiders in the second half had two giant 75-yard drives that took up basically the whole second half. The Browns drive that was in between those two drives – I think they got one first down and then they had a third and eight that they didn't convert and they didn't convert it because Baker Mayfield hit David and Joku in the hands and he dropped it. And the Raiders did convert a couple third downs along the way. David Carr had a scramble. They had a pass to Darren Waller. It's one of those things like they weren't going to stop the Raiders, but if Njoku catches that ball and the Browns get to keep it and now they're marching and they're doing Kareem Hunt and they're doing some of those things, it changes the structure of the game. And so that's the point that I'm going back to of like, sometimes your best defense when your defense isn't very good is a good offense. And that one play, it's like the, Njoku drops that, they have to punt and the Raiders end up holding the ball for like 19 of, of 22 minutes or whatever when the game is on the line. And it just, killed him so i just wanted to say that scott let's get back to you on this because we know what happened 
But what's it mean? What's next? What's ahead? Is this lingering issue? Is this something that they can get better at? Yeah, Kevin Stefanski was asked on Monday what the Browns can do to stop all those long drives. Five of the seven drives you mentioned, they were all at least 10 plays. Like there was just a ton. Even the Browns had long drives and, you know, nobody could get in the end zone consistently. And, but a lot of that had to build with the ability of the Raiders to run the ball and just kind of keep moving and just picking up yards a little bit at a time. Uh, Stefanski said, obviously there are things defensively that I know we have to get better at. Like I said before, you have to double down on what you're good at. We have to get takeaways. We have to make sure that we are playing to our strengths, which like if your main plan of attack is getting turnovers, you're probably out of other good ideas, but it goes back to what we said all season. The Browns need to outscore teams and get turnovers and they did not make enough plays on offense to outscore the other team. And that's how you get the 16 to six final. But I think like you mentioned, getting Ogan Joby and Miles Garrett um, and others healthy will help this team. I don't know if it's going to all happen over two weeks here. Uh, as far as linebackers go, like Jacobs Phillips is the really the only card that defensive coordinator Joe Woods has left to play. Phillips strengths were tackling and playing the run coming out, but he's only played 38 snaps this season due to injury. And even if he is healthy, in two weeks, you're, you're not just putting a rookie into a new role over the second half of the season. You're putting a rookie who hasn't practiced since October 9th into a new role. So that just seems like a long shot. Um, in a perfect world, you know, you have Mac Wilson and, and Phillips being the best version of themselves and with quickness and athleticism and kind of manning the linebacker spot. But that's not where this team is at right now. It's, it has who they have, and it has all these guys who are good at one thing. And Mac Wilson, for whatever reason, he played 72% of the snaps on Sunday. He played, And Malcolm Smith didn't play as much on Sunday either, right? Taki Taki and Malcolm right. Smith didn't play that much. And like Goodson and Wilson practically didn't come off the field. Right. Wilson is, um, Malcolm Smith is their, is their coverage linebacker. And they decided not to put him out there for whatever reason. They didn't want to put Taki Taki out there anymore because he is such a liability in the past game, even though the Raiders weren't going to pass a lot. You're still passing short. You're still in those in those zones where linebackers are patrolling, and having Taki Taki be that guy isn't isn't good for this team. They still have hope that Mac Wilson is going to be that guy. It's clear that's why he's he he didn't start. He started the previous two games. He didn't start against the Raiders, but again, seventy two percent of the snaps. That's a lot. What all this means going forward is hard to say because look, all five of the Browns' wins have come against teams ranked twenty first or lower in yards rushing per game, but coming up they still have a lot of bad running teams to face. So maybe the Browns get by with what they have. They have four four of their next games are against teams ranked 23rd or worse for rushing yards per game. And that starts with the Texans, who are 32nd. The Eagles are, the, I guess, the best of the worst group, who are 15th, but that's one spot ahead of the Steelers, who ran all over the Browns. And then you have the Ravens, who lead their NFL in rushing, but didn't hurt the Browns on the ground so much in week one as it was Lamar Jackson looking like an MVP throwing the ball. So it's hard to say exactly if this is, if this is something that's going to haunt the Browns going forward, or if it's just, this is where they're at. They play a lot of bad running teams and there's nine or 10 wins to nine or 10 wins to be had there. And, and that I think is the most important thing. And I think we get back to that a lot on this podcast is here's a thing. Are they good or bad at it? Is it trending up or trending down? But how does it really affect their chances of winning? And so, Ellis, Scott, you and Scott are saying the same thing here of like, not good. Nobody is saying the run defense is good, but maybe they're not going to play that many people who can exploit that fact 
Ellis, do you think this is going to cost them a game or two in the second half that will be the difference between whether they make the playoffs or not that we'll look back and say, man, that run defense, they couldn't get off the field. They gave up all these long drives. They didn't even give Chubb and Baker a chance to get back on the field. That killed them. Is that possible? Scott has switched my panic meter from a six to a seven just in the <laughs> second segment. And it's for a few reasons. This is going to sound dramatic, but this team is missing Andrew Billings, the, the signing from the Bengals, who then opted out due to COVID and an afterthought. But it is now, I think we have enough evidence where he would have been a, a role player for this team to, again, the snap counts. Let me go through this very quickly. Last game, Sheldon Richardson, 60 snaps. Larry Joby, 58 snaps. Jordan Elliott, rookie, only 24 snaps. The game before that, Richardson, 61 snaps. Ogunjobi, 41 snaps. Elliott, 16 snaps. Same type of trend against Pittsburgh. They don't have the bodies or anyone they trust to replace their two starting nose tackles. And when that gets worn, when those two get worn down, you're going to be less effective. I think this is concerning, Doug, because I wrote early in the year that this was going to be a strength of this defense, that they were going to be able to rush the passer, stop the run and create turnovers. Those are three really sustainable, a good, strong ingredients in a defense. Now it's looking like because of a lack of depth and weak schedule of teams that didn't, were not disciplined in running the ball like Pittsburgh and Las Vegas were, they benefited from that because now they look tired, they're getting moved, and there's no help coming through that door. Billings isn't coming back to play the second half of the year. Richardson and Ogunjobi are going to have to hold up. It doesn't seem like Jordan Elliott's ready to contribute. And Scott's right. There aren't a lot of run-happy teams on this schedule. Houston, though they tried, they're not good at it. The Eagles, though they're good at it, are not disciplined enough to run the football. I don't know if anyone was watching Sunday night. The Cowboys gave up 300 yards rushing on the Browns a few weeks ago, and all the Eagles want to do is drop Carson Wentz back and throw the football. I don't know what that's about. Maybe Doug Peterson will see what the Browns are allowing and actually run the football. Um, Jacksonville's Jacksonville, but then that's three tough games in November that gets you to two run-happy teams in December with at Tennessee and hosting Baltimore on Monday night on December 14th. So if you're now recovered, but then you have three tough three games that test you, and then you have two really good running teams in those pivotal defender December slots, and you're tired again and beat up and just letting teams run all over you, this trend could peep its head out much sooner again. And Doug, that is why I'm concerned because I don't know now if this has any real path towards changing outside of getting healthy. And when you're in the thick of an NFL season, Kevin's fancy says it every week, everyone's hurt. So I don't know how this changes. So yeah, Doug, I am worried about it specifically with those two December games, Tennessee and Derrick Henry and everything Baltimore can do on the ground. The Bengals defense stinks. They beat the Titans. How hard can it be? That's my analysis. Hey, Elijah Lee. He's some guy. Is he, is he an answer? By the way, we are recording this on Tuesday morning before the Browns traded for three defensive linemen at the trade deadline and, and invalidated the whole, the whole discussion. <laughs> um, so, but did Elijah Lee is this linebacker. They claimed off uh, waivers from Detroit. Anything, anything, anyone? No, not a game. No. Okay. I thought maybe he would help them win games. Um, so listen, it's one of those things. I still believe in the idea of like, get run over, get run over, get run over. They, they try to throw on first down and the tight end drops it. So now it's second and 10. Now they do run and they get five, 
but now it's third and five and now they're going to throw. And now miles Garrett rushes the passer and hits the quarterback's arm. as he throwing as he's throwing and you get off the field. It's, it goes back to it again of like, I guess I'd rather than maybe not on Sunday more often than not, I'd rather get marched on than give up big plays because you're just so incompetent in the secondary, which they also are that you just are allowing 75 yard touchdown passes all the time. So I, I get that it's hard on your defense. It wears them down. But as long as you keep an offense on the field, I know that maybe turnovers aren't a plan. And I agree with that, Scott. It's like, Hey, what's your plan? It's like, uh, get an interception. <laughs> but as long as miles Garrett's on the field, you actually do have a chance at that. And so if you can, you just keep them, make them get every first down. And then if he can make one big play, if he gets a sack on first down and now it's second and 17, now it's harder to run down their throats. And you just have to do that a couple times. And that didn't happen on Sunday. That's like the one thing of like, what was the big difference is, I don't know, their best player had an ankle injury and then also got a knee injury. And also he can't feel his hand, which was like a revelation in the post game. Every part of his body, head, shoulders, knees, and toes, it's all numb. Miles Garrett doesn't even know where he is on the field. He can't feel himself, yet he still does what he does. I mean, good Miles Garrett just gives you a shot on some of these. So I'm going to hold on to that a little bit because I like to be positive in the bye week. Scott, what do you think? Like, you've made congratulations on freaking Ellis out, though. Your analysis was so on point, you moved Ellis's panic meter. Here's the bottom line, though. Despite everything that happened against the Raiders, nothing has really changed for this team. They need to score, you know, 25 to 30 points a game to win, period. Like, no matter what this defense does to improve or, you know, from game to game, they need to score on offense to win, and they need to score a lot. And that's just the, you know, that's what the Browns are this year. It was that way, you know, four weeks ago. It's that way now. It's going to be that way over these last eight games. They just – they need to do better on offense and they didn't do it on Sunday. All right. So that's a run defense breakdown. I mean, you had to analyze that, right? I mean, like, I'm glad that was an excellent thing to talk about right now because we all saw it, but like, what does it mean? Which I hope is what we do on this podcast twice a week, every Tuesday and Friday. And again, you guys are listening to the orange and Brown talk. The post game podcast is always a, a, a great experience for anybody who's listened to that after the games on Sundays. And then on the Monday podcast, no, yeah, the Tuesday, no, what is it? What day of the week is it right now on the Tuesday, Tuesday, the Tuesday orange and Brown talk that dropped on Tuesday morning, as you're getting this, what's the name of this podcast? Got to watch the tape later on Tuesday. Uh, Dan lobby got a toast of like yelling Doug. So like, I like to go through and everybody gets yelled at eventually, but I basically backed Dan lobby into a corner of, I want the Browns to make the playoffs this year. And Dan doesn't. And Dan was like, you have mischaracterized my opinion. And I said, Dan, that is my specialty. So that was a hot trade deadline episode. You can listen to that on the Tuesday, orange and Brown talk, but orange and Brown talk is great five days a week. And then we dive in Tuesdays and Fridays and we will dive in. After the break, Ellis Williams and Baker Mayfield, their best friends. And Ellis is going to tell you what is up with Baker heading to the second half right after this. Back on Gotta Watch the Tape, Ellis Williams, dive in on Baker Mayfield. Yeah, so I think it's important to check in on where we're at with the Browns quarterback because not only are we halfway through his pivotal third year, but we're halfway through this very season. You know, the Browns got lucky with where their bye week landed and were able to do stuff like this because of it. So, I know we did a deep dive on Baker just two weeks ago after that Steelers game, 
But that's what's been so fun about this year so far. We're gaining new information each week on this quarterback and its offense. So with eight down and eight to go, plus maybe a playoff game, I think it's time to put Baker into context this first half of the season in review. So let's just go walk through uh, those some of these first eight games and feel free to chime in if like one of these games now surprises you or just you know with the, the gift of hindsight. Of course, week one, we remember what that was. A PFF grade of only 55, and the Ravens blew out the Browns. We don't really talk about that one anymore. Bounce back game against the Bengals, uh, two touchdowns, PFF grade of 74, 16 for 23, 219 yards. He does enough to win. Next week, same stat line, basically 16 for 23, two touchdowns, a PFF grade of 63, beating Washington. Then a big win. Well, we thought at the time was a big win. Now we see what Dallas is. Maybe not so much. Of course, an injury there changes that team. But uh, Baker goes 13, or excuse me, 19 to 30 for 165 yards, two scores, and the Browns put up 49 points in Jerry World, beating the Cowboys at PFF grade of 68. Then we get into these two tough defenses, and where Baker has struggled against you know the the top the upper tier defenses. Um, they beat the Colts 32-23. Baker had two turnovers, though, a PFF grade of 54, still 247 yards. That They were able to get some chunk plays on that Colts defense. And then just the one everyone, like the Ravens game, wants to forget about at Pittsburgh, 10 of 18, 119 yards, threw a pick on his first play, a PFF grade of only 32. Bounces back, though, with really a career game, five passing touchdowns, only one interception, didn't complete a pass in the first quarter, and then went on to rip off like 21 straight. PFF grade of 90, by far his best of the season, uh, 22 of 28, 297 yards. Still hasn't gotten that 300-yard game, but when we're talking three yards of difference there, I'll give him that. That's a 300-yard game for Baker Mayfield and a win. Thank you. Um, Thank you for giving him that, Ellis. <laughs> yeah, he, he deserves that. Come on now. Um, and then in week eight, what we just saw, 12 of 25, 122, PFF grade of 66. And a weird game. Wins, it was almost like 40-mile-hour wins there in Cleveland. And it, that game is going to bug me because I, I almost tweeted this or said this on the podcast and I just forgot about it because I sounded like a Minnesota kid that's used to a dome. I think all football games should be, should be played in controlled environments. I cannot stand when weather has that much to do with the outcome of a football game. Because to me, as I started this opening saying, what's so fun about this team is each week we get new information. Doug, you said it after the game. We really didn't get a whole lot there. We didn't get a whole lot about what this offense is going to look like without Baker Mayfield, or excuse me, without Odell Beckham Jr. And if Baker Mayfield could build off his in-pocket performance versus the Bengals because the winds were swirling. So that kind of ticked me off. But before we, we jump into some, some stats to both quantify and put Baker in perspective amongst his peers and, and other quarterbacks, as I ran down that list, were there any games that we now look back on and, we were maybe higher on than we don't need to be. Dallas is one that stands out for me. Is that Bengals win more impressive now that they just picked up a win last week, as you said, against the Titans, Doug and Joe Burrow are able to do that. Are there wins now that we're looking at, or is this kind of, as we've walked through this week, we've, or this season so far, we've had an accurate assessment on where Baker is as we do these deep dives. Lamar Jackson also threw a pick six in the first quarter against the Steelers. So I think that means Baker's playing like an MVP. I think that's like the bottom line here, right? Is that the takeaway? <laughs> I'll buy it. I'll buy it again. Very generous. I love the generosity of spirit. Yes. No, I, look, Baker through that, those five games, I think was doing what he was supposed to do in the offense. He had the, the huge out of the norm first half against the Colts. Since then, it's just been 
a lot of weird stuff. But for the most part, I mean, I, I look at Baker Mayfield as playing the way you would expect him to play in the offense if it's going to be successful. Uh, it's just consistency has been the problem, especially over the last few games. So the two things that I think I'll take away is 100% agree we didn't learn anything Sunday. However, I didn't think Baker looked like phased or incompetent. He actually was putting the ball where it needed to go in the wind and guys were dropping it. So I actually thought that part of it, I thought Derek, like Derek Carr missed some throws. Derek Carr missed a deep shot that was there. He missed a sideline throw that was there. I thought Derek Carr actually just like missed more stuff in the wind sort of inexplicably than Baker did. So like they didn't have the ball. They had no drives. They never got a chance to do anything. And they had some drives that were killed by drops. So I actually thought Baker exuded a level of competence when they only scored six points in bad conditions that I thought was actually slightly encouraging building off the huge Bengals thing. And the other thing was, there's actually two more things. One is the Colts. Everyone's talking about how great the Colts defense is right now. I know the Colts didn't have Darius Leonard in that game, and that's a huge difference. And I don't want to overlook that, but the Browns roughed up Indianapolis in that first quarter and the Colts are now rolling again. And so let's not lose sight of how good of a half that was. Cause the second half was so bad offensively. That was excellent against some people who know how to play defense. So I'm going to hold on to that. And the last thing is we've talked a lot about boots and boot left boot, right? Are you, which way are you faking the run? And Chris Spielman, who just is excellent. I love when Spielman is on a Browns game. I'm so, so happy he was on the game Sunday. They were joking about how, Hey, here's Baker starting off the game with the boot. I feel like we have really seen Baker fit into what this whole Stefanski offense is now. I think he gets it more than he did early. And what I am looking forward to is it felt like early with Chubb. Chubb was carrying the offense while the pass game was figuring out what Kevin Stefanski wanted to do. I feel like Baker now gets it eight, eight games in. And Baker has never been, I get the Kevin Stefanski offense with Nick Chubb. And now all those run fakes get even better to open up a boot because it's to Nick Chubb and also to a healthy and rested Kareem Hunt. Not that Kareem Hunt's been bad, but that the, the second half of a power running back combo, both those guys with a Baker who's more comfortable, I think is a new world for the Browns that we haven't seen yet, which is why I have hope about Baker and the offense as a whole. Back to you, Ellis. Hey, real, real quick, one more thing that I, that I didn't mention before. I've got multiple emails this week about how bad Baker Mayfield is and how the Browns need to do something. He had five drops. Uh, there were five drops by Browns receivers, and there was one throwaway. He completed 48% of his passes, but if you adjust it for the drops and throwaway, it went up to 70%. So it looks a lot better in, in, in retrospect than you know when you're going through it. Yep, Doug, like the all-pro host that you are, you set me up perfectly there because I want listeners to – remember what you said about that first half versus the Colts in the second half, because that, and then we're going to get into how Baker fits within this op- offense in the second half, but that the highs and lows is really, and, and even what Scott just said about the drops, the highs and lows of Baker. And then this offense as a whole is really what I found when going through these stats with Baker Mayfield and where he ranks amongst the league. So we're going to walk through um, about five or six stats that I deem the, the, the got to have the important ones for quarterbacks, touchdowns, completion percentage, passer rating, QBR, which is depending which one you use. It's, it's kind of interesting what, what I'll share there. Um, yards and yards per attempt. And then we'll get into his rank within the division. So first for touchdowns, he is seventh 
tied for seventh uh, with 15 touchdowns. He's tied with guys like Justin Herbert, Big Ben, Deshaun Watson. He has more than Jared Goff, Lamar Jackson, and Kyler Murray. Now, and you guys feel free to jump in if any of these stats, this is kind of just a grab bag. So if any of these stats catch your attention, just feel free to hop in. I'm going to keep reading them. And, and the one thing with Baker and that those touchdowns is it's what I expected coming into this year. Kirk Cousins saw his touchdowns increase dramatically inside Kevin Stefanski's offense because what this play action heavy attack does is, of course, it defines your windows, but it also gives you just more passing touchdown opportunities near the red zone. And that's what we've seen out of Baker Mayfield. He's been just a sniper in close, and I'm going to talk about that later also. But that that is to be expected, and it's impressive, that 15-touchdown mark. And let's see if he can maintain staying in the you know the upper half of and in the top 10, really, for, for touchdowns. Um, next is completion percentage. And, and this one's tough because, uh, you know, again, it was Baker's really his calling card coming out of the draft. Uh, he's at a 61.4. It ranks 28th. The only quarterbacks below him are a couple of NFC East guys, Dwayne Haskins, who's benched, Carson Wentz, and then Sam Darnold. And as the MVP impersonations continue, Lamar Jackson is in company with Baker Mayfield. Um, And again, that is not where Baker wants to be, of course, with that completion percentage. I think, of course, like we've been saying, he's been a victim of some tough drops. A great example of that is last Sunday. But one thing I think that offsets his overall completion percentage is what I just said uh, about his red zone efficiency. Remember, still he has no red zone interceptions, and that is as good as it gets for a quarterback. Those are just no-nos, and he is not committing that first cardinal sin as a quarterback, turning it over in the red zone. And and remember, keep in mind, Browns fans, the Browns are still seventh in red zone touchdown scoring, so they're converting touchdowns 76% of the time when they get in the red zone. That is, of course, a, a product of the entire offense, but Baker Mayfield's efficiency there. Um, now we're going to go into passer rating and QBR, and these two stats are different in, in, in some interesting ways. His passer rating is 90.9. He's above household names like Cam Newton, Carson Wentz, and Nick, Nick Foles. But unfortunately, that rank is only 26, where there are notable quarterbacks ahead of him like Teddy Bridgewater, Ryan Fitzpatrick, who lost his job, Phillip Rivers, and even Nick Mullins of the 49ers. But then when you bring in QBR, he's 71.4, and that ranks 14th in front of guys like Deshaun Watson, and he's only uh, one spot behind Tom Brady. And his QBR of 71.4 is actually highest among quarterbacks in the AFC North. He's got a better QBR than Burrow, Lamar Jackson, and Big Ben. So if you're looking for some any fun election night trivia, y'all, maybe you can try that question out for size. I sent it out to our subject. (laughs) I mean, that's just crazy. Where do you guys land on QBR? I think QBR is the electoral college of quarterback stats. It's tells you something and it's like you won that, but you didn't actually get the most votes, but it's a thing that we came up with. Yeah. It's like somebody took passer rating, just wanted to make it a little more confusing, you know, <laughs> that's football stats for you. And that's why we yeah. do gotta watch the tape. We try to make it less complicated for you all, but sometimes we can't even figure it out. Um, and then these last two ones quickly, before I get to one that I think matters the most, um, is yards per game, uh, 189 ranks 24th, one spot below that Ryan Fitzpatrick, who mind you to make QBR even more confusing, um, the quarterback with the fourth highest QBR through four games behind Patrick Mahomes, Aaron Rodgers, and Russell Wilson is Ryan Fitzpatrick. So Doug, I think your electoral college and QBR comp works there. 
Um, so yeah, his 24th ranking in yards is one spot below Ryan Fitzpatrick, one spot above Nick Foles, and two spots above uh, quote unquote struggling Lamar Jackson. And if we did got to watch the tape for Ravens uh, fans, I, I bet we'd talk a lot about Lamar. But um, it's gonna be interesting to see how he rebounds in the second half of this season. And lastly, before I get to where he is in the division, because I think that's what we'll spend a little bit of time talking about, his yards per attempt, and this is one of the most important stats, at least to me, for a quarterback. It measures, are you driving the ball downfield? Are you threatening defenses? Are you uh, putting your offense in positions to gain chunk plays on first and second down and and then converting third and long when need be? Uh, Baker sits at 6.8 yards per attempt. That ranks 26th in the league. He's one spot above Big Ben, but the Steelers' offense is – sort of predicated on the short passing game and they've got a defense that can carry them at times too. For this stat, just for context listeners, I like to see this number around 7.8 or eight yards per attempt. That's a benchmark that again, tells opposing defenses that your quarterback is threatening teams downfield uh, quarterbacks with a 7.8 or better include Derek Carr, Ryan Tannehill, Josh Allen, Justin Herbert, even Teddy Bridgewater and Phillip Rivers uh, respectively said 8.1 and 8.2 yards per attempt. That's inside the top 10. So when I lay those stats out to you guys, what do you, what do you get? Is it, is it much of how this, this conversation started? It's just a, a mixed bag with Baker. Do you value some of those stats more than others? Where does your mind go when I list those out? You left off one important quarterback stat, Ellis. Uh-oh, hit me. Wins! Five and three, <laughs> baby QB wins. Listen, the one other thing that's interesting, and I think I actually saw a headline and I didn't read it, which I'm sure very many of our listeners are familiar with. That's why you listen to podcasts, because who wants to read? I think the ringer did something about like how so many quarterbacks can scramble now and can run. And I do think with Baker, it's important, like completion percentage is just more important. And yards per temp is just more important because Lamar can run and Josh Allen can run and, and other Kyler Murray can run and that you're just factoring that into their game. Daniel Jones will rip off an 80 yarder, right? That when you're really there's, you don't really factor any running into Baker. So everything about him is those passing stats, which is why he's, he needs to have a great completion percentage and he needs to have a good yard because you're not getting any of that bonus stuff. So I think as we're thinking about that statistically, honestly, Baker at his best, I mean, Baker's got to be top 10 in the league completion percentage, right? When he's really being Baker, is that even disputable? That's what he's got to do. Boom, 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 boom. And then if everything else, well, yards per attempt, maybe, well, he's not, he's making a read. He's hitting the guy. They're moving the chains. That's what he has to be about. So of all those completion percentage that it's not great is, is the one that jumped out to me the most. Yeah, I think completion percentage and really adjusted completion percentage because uh, we talked about drops. But even when you factor all that stuff in, he's still 22nd, high 20s, depending on how you want to filter this. But uh, that's really what I think people look at is when they want to pick apart what Baker Mayfield has done this season. He's had some really good games. You know, Cincinnati, first Cincinnati game, Washington game, he completed almost 70% of his passes. Didn't throw a lot either, which, again, is, I think, uh, something that ideally is what's happening with him and in the offense, but the fact that even adjusted his completion percentage is so low compared to everyone is kind of concerning. And the one thing in the end is of, of course, and we all know this is when they are operating at their best, they're going to run the ball. They're going to lean on the run. And so he's not total yards. And some of this stuff is like, he, man, if, if Baker Mayfield was like in the top 10 in the league in passing yards, it probably would be because the Browns are so far behind. They have to throw all the time. Like they don't, right. that's not the plan. 
for him to be in the top 10 in the league in passing yards. So like a stat like that isn't one that I don't think people should be locked in on, but it's like that efficiency of when he is called upon, are they moving the chains or not? So then what does it all mean? Like what's, so what's, and where, where's he need to get better? What's, what's, what's it all mean for the second half here, Ellis? Right, right, right. Before we get into, cause I do want to highlight some things that Baker is doing really well through these first eight games and then where he must improve going forward. Uh, in the in the final eight, what he needs to show, Kevin Stefanski and Andrew Barry. I want to have a little discussion about something Browns fans probably aren't going to like, but I think it's important when we talk context of this division. Through eight games, where does Baker Mayfield rank amongst AFC North quarterbacks? That's Lamar Jackson, that's Ben Roethlisberger, that's Joe Burrow, and Baker Mayfield. I'll start, and for me, it's exactly what Doug said about completion percentage and yards per attempt though him and Lamar Jackson are close in a lot of these categories. The margin for error for Lamar, it completely blows Baker out of the water because of so much he can create on with his feet. And of course he's an MVP a year ago, big Ben's a hall of famer. And this probably comes down to Joe Burrow or Baker Mayfield. And right now Joe Burrow is looking like a quarterback who in empty sets can just pick apart a defense much like he did against LSU, which puts Baker as the fourth best quarterback in the AFC North for me. And now if this was the NFC East, this would be a very different conversation because then you have more time to build with Baker, but that's what makes these next eight games. So hyper speed warp speed important because of the urgency within your own division. To me, a fundamental pillar of successful roster building is crafting a team that can beat the opposing teams within your division. And having the fourth best quarterback within that division, to me, is not a sustainable plan to becoming an annual playoff team. Simply, you can't hope you play the NFC East every year and can be a wild card and three teams in your division get in every year. So for me, I know Browns fans don't want to hear it right now that he's the fourth best quarterback within this own division, but that is what I've seen so far. You guys, am I putting too much stock into this this made-up stat that really only exists on like first-take summer shows and within GMs? buildings closer to the draft or do you think this is an important metric that may not matter now but will matter in the offseason where do you land with this yeah I think it's made up because I don't think that if the Browns were in the NFC East would that make you like more likely to keep him or like you would invest in him more just because Dwayne Haskins, Haskins, Kyle Allen, Daniel Jones, Carson Wentz suck and Dak Prescott's hurt. Like, I, I know what you're saying, but I think part of it is, A, Ben Roethlisberger is like 30% robot right now. And so I don't know when he's going to you know, be like 50% robot and then he'll play until he's 46. But, you know, but Lamar and Burrow, I mean, they're going to be here with Baker for, for a long time if Baker's here. So that's not changing. But I think part of the question is, I mean, listen, Lamar Jackson was the MVP and Joe Burrow looks like Tom Brady. I know Joe Burrow doesn't like it. I can't help it. He looks like Tom Brady. So if they're both tens, I mean, and they might be, and Lamar hasn't been great in the first half, but if Lamar and Burrow as franchise quarterbacks are tens, if Baker can be an eight, does that mean you don't keep Baker because you're looking for a 10? Because you think you have to have your own 10 because the other guys in the divisions have tens? And Ben... You know, Ben's not a 10 anymore, but Ben's like a robot eight and a half. So like, that's pretty good too. So I guess I get what you're saying, but I'm not sure I would factor it into like my evaluation of my guy and my team, because I think if you think you're a run team, you throw to the tight ends, maybe you don't need a 10 to win. 
And I'm now if he's a six, you can't just, but I think it's like how, if he's not as good as those guys, how close is he to those guys? I think matters in that equation too. Scott, what do you think? I think if you're a fan, you have to look at this as how you're, you're really comparing them and how big of an impact they're having on the success of the team and not maybe just against each other. Right. And even if you go that way, I'd still, I would agree with Ellis that I would probably put him fourth because for what little success the Bengals have had, Joe Burrow has been a huge part of it, even in all their close games. He looks like he has a, a command of that offense. He looks great for a rookie. Roethlisberger, obviously having a great season. They're undefeated. Lamar Jackson, like Ellis said, he's not having the passing season he had a year ago, but he does so many other things and causes so much fear in the defense that he has a bigger impact on their success than Baker is having with the Brown success. So yeah, I think I would put him forth if you're, if you're looking at it like that. And I'm not trying to make excuses for Baker because we can't go to a point, a place where, you know, he's the number one pick in the draft. He's the franchise quarterback. And now it's like, well, he's a six. Isn't that good enough? I mean, I get it. That's not how you go about it. But I do think there is somewhere between Patrick Mahomes and get rid of him. Right. And he's in that range. So then we've just got to find where in that range he fits and where the quarterback position fits in the context of the Browns, the division, everything else. Doug, that's exactly it. And that's, what's going to be so fascinating about watching Baker Mayfield in these final eight games. Is he an eight or is he a six, five, or is he a six? Because you're right. That is the difference. And that's what we're talking about with Baker Mayfield within the margins. And, and that is where the highs and lows tend to battle. You know, if you're a nine sometimes, and then you're a four, the other times, we're talking averages here that gets you to, you know, a six or seven, eight. And that's why we're having this conversation. And that is really what I'm sure Andrew Barry is praying for that these numbers start defining themselves. So this conversation can be put to bed, but I do think it is an elephant in the room. If you sign up a quarterback to be the guy that can bring you to a Super Bowl, but for the next five, six, seven years, he's going to be the third or fourth quarterback in that division that sounds like an elephant in the room scenario, a scenario where you're always looking for, is there someone better over my shoulder? But that's not what we're going to talk about for the rest of this pod. I want to get into first what Baker Mayfield has been doing well, those, those highs and not even some highs that he's dropping, just some consistency points too. Like I've already said, he's been a red zone wizard. He has been throwing darts. Think about the uh, second touchdown to Harrison Bryant versus the Bengals. That was a, a, a little hole route that Harrison ran and Baker fitted in right between a, a really a cover three could have been a cover four zone, but he got it in between a, a, a backer peeling to the flats and the other backer sitting inside just an absolute dart. And that's why Kevin Stefanski drafts a kid like Harrison Bryant. He knows where he needs to be because Baker trusts him to be there and Baker can still do that. He can still put balls on the money in tight windows in the red zone. It's really fascinating. He he's struggling between the twenties on more placement and touch throws, but when he needs a ball to be where it needs to exactly be in a tight confined area, he, he's been money. And that's the, that's a skill. That is a 100% quarterback bona fide skill set that cannot be overlooked. Secondly, something that does get overlooked. We haven't talked about in a while. is just his wizardry with the ball, with these play fakes, uh, Kevin Stefanski is asking him to do a lot of things that don't show up on the box score. It is critical for how he plays these fakes when he has the ball, when he doesn't have the ball, think, the Odell Beckham Jr. touchdown in Dallas, just that one-yard slant. No one knew Baker had the ball except Odell because he knew the ball was going to him. He's wide open, 
in the back of the end zone for an easy touchdown. That is Baker Mayfield being disciplined about his craft. The Baker from last year is so far gone. The one who had sloppy footwork and was undisciplined and just thought that their athletes could win. And the, you know, the whole feeling dangerous Baker, that Baker feels gone. He still needs to play with that type of swagger, but this is a young man who in three years has turned into an attention to detail freak. And if you're betting on the long-term Baker, that is good stock. That's good evidence. He is so far been a, a, a stickler for the details. And that's a product of Kevin Stefanski and then both Baker being coachable, which goes into my next point. He's been extremely co- coachable and a versatile QB. Think about it. He's gone from being a strictly a shotgun throwing college quarterback. And in his first two seasons, an RPO thrower, even if <laughs> you guys see Hugh Jackson came out and said that it, uh, 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 uh. Hugh Jackson alert. I've got to watch the tape. Uh, void, void. Sorry. He gave us our, he gave us our name. So I think we, we deserve, he deserves a little respect for that. <laughs> yeah. A little, a little, go ahead. Sorry. But that's what I'm saying. He came out and he said, he still thinks Baker's in the wrong system and shouldn't be throwing under center. But to me, that makes no sense because the point of being under center is to make the entire game easier for him, not make seven on seven throwing easier for him, but he was going to be Hugh. My point is, He's committed and become an under center throwing quarterback, which is difficult for guys sometimes. So you have to turn your back to the defense, which where footwork becomes king and attention to detail is mandatory. As I said, that's all kudos to Baker Mayfield. Some quarterbacks could have just flopped and twist and turned and been kind of coarse and not wanting to change. And this could have been way uglier than it has. And to be clear, this hasn't been ugly. That's the really good part. This really hasn't been ugly aside from one that moment, the Steelers game to that first pick in, that first throw in the Bengals game, that was like where it was really flirting with uh, red alert, ugliness, danger zone. And you saw how he got out of that because that goes in to one of my last points here. We've talked about him throwing outside the pocket, him and Lamar Jackson uh, lead the league or one and two in yards outside the pocket. That's an impressive stat. Anytime you're in uh, conversation with Lamar Jackson, being able to throw on the run that though it helps you change your launch point, balls can sail on a guy it it is a skill set that he that is unique to him right now going back to that Bengals game he won a game on the final drive and that can never be taken away from him that is an all-time quarterback alpha male moment that you either step up and reach and, and take the moment or you fall back and you try to play for a field goal or you go you know you throw that interception on fourth down or you turn the ball over we saw it plenty of times under Freddie Kitchens and the one time Baker had been asked to do that this year he came through and he pulled it out in a, in a game that Browns fans will never forget. What Also, what was impressive about the game outside of just the way he did it, uh, prior to the Bengals game, he had only five – or excuse me, only six touchdowns from the pocket all year. So, essentially, he had ten total touchdowns, six from the pocket, four outside the pocket, you know, almost a one-to-one ratio there. And then he blows up for five touchdowns all from the pocket against the Bengals, showing that he can be that guy – it's just, again, really what the crux of this conversation has been is it needs to become consistent. So that's what he's been doing well. I'll, and quickly, I'll, I'll lay out some things that need to we need to see him change in these next eight games, why it's so pivotal. The simple answer to this is the bad interception's got to go. We can't see another Mika Fitzpatrick Steelers type interception right now. He has seven INTs. That's fifth most. Keeping that number under double digits would be a colossal win for Baker Mayfield. We're going to have a completely different conversation if that stays. Even I'll give him 10. If he throws three more over these next eight games, credit to him. That's going to be a huge accomplishment. 
Most importantly, though, he needs to become a progression thrower. It's become very obvious that he's a first read quarterback, which isn't always a bad thing. If your first read's open like it was in the Bengals game, take the first read. That's the point. Make your life simple. Move the chains. Create the big play. Your quarter, your offensive coordinator just designs plays that way for the first read to be open. That's the point. Good defenses, though, take away that first read. We saw the Steelers do it. We saw the Bengals not be able to do it, and Oakland is a, is a throwout game. The win made that too difficult. But I will say this, versus the Raiders, of his 25 throws, 17 were first reads. Eight times he came off that first read from what I saw on the tape, but only twice did that result in a positive play. Uh, once he kept the ball, and the other was uh, a relocation for Jarvis Landry, which he dropped. And so that's those are the types of plays. You need to see him pat his feet in the pocket, you know, have a hand come off the ball, and then pull it back and then find his second or third read. One time in that same Raiders game, he missed Jarvis on a third read. The ball was behind him. It was a Jarvis coming across on a drag. So no interceptions, become that progression thrower. And we are going to be having a very different conversation about Baker Mayfield after games three, four, five, and six if those two things get taken care of. And that's why I was so disappointed with the wins in the Raiders game because I thought he really started something in Cincinnati and I wanted to see how he built upon that. But now he gets a bye week and a Houston defense to do that. So things are trending in an interesting direction for Baker Mayfield, and he's got eight games to prove whether he's this franchise's starting quarterback next year or not. So one very quick thing I wanted to mention, I think we maybe had mentioned it on the podcast, or people were talking about it. The snap count got a little stale, whatever, in a couple games, and then they switched it up, and were, he was drawing people off sides in the Raiders game. Maybe that's more Kevin Stefanski or Alex Van Pelt. Baker's certainly a part of it. That, I think, goes to another like coachable thing right? That that was a problem that all of a sudden became a plus. Yep, exactly. That's exactly it. Because we wrote about it. We talked about it on here. Uh, the Steelers ate him alive for it. And then all of a sudden you're seeing guys go off sides. Uh, I will say that it's disappointing to see Jedrick Wills get two false start penalties when you're doing that. You know, you sort of, you correct one problem and then make a new one. So Jedrick's got to clean that up. But that by no means is that Baker's fault. And like you said, that is a complete coachable moment again, where he is molded and comes out better for it. Now, I will say also, when you're talking about a guy who is the overall number one pick, sometimes saying he's coachable sounds like the thing that the coach says at the banquet at the end of the year because they don't have anything else to say about the person's talent. And it's like they were going to say his parents brought great snacks. And they were like, no, that's a little let's say he's coachable. I don't know. But he's getting the best coaching coaching of his NFL career right now. Right. He's absorbing it. You can see him absorbing it. And so the fact that you said it's, it hasn't been ugly, it's like you can see it's like it's progress in real time. It's, he's not fighting against it. He's not coming out in the postgame and saying like, well, I had to change all my footwork. That's why I stink. It's not my fault. Man, I wish I could be in shotgun all the time. I mean, like he's not he's taking it in, which to me, like lends to the idea of like more time, more time. It's not about just the second half of this year. It's about next year, too. I don't want a coachable guy who is absorbing good teaching I, I want more than 16 games to evaluate that. So I think that's a very interesting point you brought up, Ellis. I think it can sound weird to your ear, but I actually think it probably is the most important thing you said in this whole Baker discussion. Yeah, and, and to, to let, let's let the record show that I think using the preface of Baker Mayfield's former first overall pick is becoming a disservice and unfair to him. Um, for anyone out there who thinks I'm not a, a, a Baker Mayfield guy or I, I, I look for the negatives in his game, uh, during that entire deep dive, I did not once mention how he was a former first overall pick because I don't think it's fair to evaluate him in that way. He's not going to 
be, you know, look, Lamar Jackson wasn't a first overall pick. Pat Mahomes wasn't a first overall pick. These quarterbacks are found in all different ways. And at the end of the day, you have who you have. So instead focusing on what Doug just said, his coachability and his ability to grow and blossom into what you hope he can be is far more important than using the first overall pick as a measuring stick. So I don't think that's a fair knock on him. I'm not saying you were doing that, Doug. I just think for Browns fans own sanity, not talking about Baker as a first overall pick would be best for everyone involved. I think. No, I, I was definitely doing it. It's okay. You can, I mean, I was, I'm definitely doing it and I'm probably going to keep doing it because I can't help it, but I agree with what you said, Scott, what did you think of all the stuff that Ellis was, was, what did you really think popped to you? Yeah, I, Maybe one thing that he really didn't get into and, and how we're going to judge Baker has a lot to do with how well this team runs the ball this year, because Baker Mayfield, what he's supposed to be in the offense is so reliant on how well Stefanski's offense can run it. And over these last three and a half games, it hasn't really been consistent. And that's where a lot of the Baker talk has come from because he's been inconsistent because of that. And I think over the next few games, if they get Wyatt Teller back, if Nick Chubb comes back sometime soon, you know, th- this team can can look like it did over that four-game winning streak. And when they're running the ball, Baker's a different quarterback. And like you said, you, ideally, you want him to throw less than 30 times. You want him to have less than 300 yards, probably. You want him to have a few touchdowns, but you want efficiency. You don't want big eye-popping numbers. And again, that goes back to everybody trying to wrap their head around, okay, he's the number one pick, but he's not supposed to look like Patrick Mahomes. He's not supposed to play like Lamar Jackson. And this all goes back to how well the Browns run the ball. So they need Wyatt Teller back. They need Nick Chubb back. If they can hit the ground running with those guys coming out of the bye, I think he's going to be in a good spot. All right. So I think we'll skip the little things at the end of the podcast again, because it's a bye week. We have three more got to watch the tapes before we get to another Browns game against the Houston Texans. So Ellis, this was your topic. We'll give you the last word here to wrap up Baker. Yeah, I think Browns fans really should just enjoy this moment they're at with Baker Mayfield. Again, coming off that five-touchdown performance against the Bengals, sure, you would have liked to see the Browns offense move the ball a little better against Las Vegas, but drops were were not on the Browns' side. Um, that game probably looks a little different if Ninjoku or the, the Jarvis touchdown called a different way. This is going to be the most critical stretch of Baker Mayfield's career, these next eight games. He gets a, some lighter defenses in the Eagles, the Texans, and the Jags coming up. But then it's going to be Tennessee, which is another lighter defense, but just at talking about a playoff caliber team. The Tennessee game is huge. And then you get Baltimore Monday night in Cleveland. These are the moments. You know, Pittsburgh could have been a moment for him. Instead, it went the other way. They weren't healthy. No Nick Chubb, no Wyatt Teller. Assuming those guys are back, Baker Mayfield has a real chance to prove and finally kind of end this conversation of where his future is at with the Browns if this team gets to 10, maybe even 11 wins and can get that Baltimore game look good against Tennessee. It's starting to look like that Week 17 game versus Pittsburgh probably won't matter, which we suspected early in the season anyway. Scott was one of the first guys saying that. That Baltimore game is going to be huge, and if he can change the narrative there, play how he can play in winning games by, like Scott said, running the football, not turning the ball over, being efficient in the red zone. This this is going to be a very different conversation, but that's what needs to happen. We got to play these games first to find out, and that's what makes this offense so fascinating. We're learning new stuff each week. If I was a betting man, I wouldn't know where to land on this one. Baker has been one of the hardest quarterback prospects to figure out his highs, his lows, and then his all is in between. But that's what makes it fun. That's what makes it fun on here, and gotta watch the tape. 
By the way, can I push back on the week 17 game won't matter? The Browns are going to be trying to stop the Steelers from going 16 and 0, man. That's going to be huge. What a showdown. Can the Browns ruin the Steelers' perfect season? Will the Steelers play their starters? Will they rest them? They have the one seed locked up. Oh, the drama. I don't know. I mean, like joking, but I saw a headline on ESPN that was like, can the Steelers run the table? They're like halfway there. I don't know. Scott, if, you think if the Steelers, if the Steelers don't play their starters, they come here in week 17 and a certain quarterback is under center for them. And Miles Garrett's on the field. That's going to, that's going to be quite a moment. Now that's a tease, Scott. Now that's a tease. <laughs> yeah. So next week on got to watch the tape, Scott will break down what exactly the Browns will do to Mason Rudolph. If he plays in week 17. Mm-hmm. All right. Thanks to you guys for listening. We'll be back on Friday with another got to watch the tape, even though there's no game this weekend. So you'll have all weekend to listen to that baby. And, uh, and they'll be back next week to get ready more for the Houston Texans. So we hope you guys are enjoying the Browns off week. Thanks as always to Ellis and Scott for the great work on this. Thanks to you guys for listening. Make sure you're listening to orange and Brown talk all week. Read cleveland.com slash Browns. Such great stuff. We're going to analyze a lot of things about this team here during this off week. So appreciate you guys being part of it. For Scott, for Ellis, I'm Doug. Thanks for diving in on Gotta Watch the Tape.